Hurry up and wait. This is a common phrase when talking about our military. We rush, rush, rush to get somewhere, then we stand around and wait. Our society is an instant breakfast, microwave, email, social media, computerized society. We want it now, or even yesterday, if possible. We don't like to wait. Waiting is foreign to our fast-paced lifestyle. We have places to go, things to do. Can't wait, impatient. However, when God deals with us, we learn that sometimes it is for our benefit to wait. He knows what is best for us, what we need, and sometimes it is to wait. We currently are searching for a new senior pastor, and we could hire any pastor that appears on our doorstep. But is it the right one? Has God prepared him to be the right fit for our needs? Has God prepared us to receive the pastor that he has been patiently preparing for us? How long does it take? Are our wants in line with what God wants to provide? One can build a house quickly on the surface, but it takes time and effort to lay a firm foundation on bedrock before you build. Can you trust God enough to wait for his foundation to be laid? Hello, and welcome to God's Word for You for today from Liberty Lake Church. This is part six in the series called Thirst, a study in the Psalm. So take out your Bible and turn to Psalm chapter 62, verse 1, and follow along with church elder Gary Baker as he discusses the need to defer to God's leading in the session titled, Waiting on God. Can you hear me? All right. Do you want to hear me? Well, it's an honor to be up here, and uh, anytime I get to speak to God's people, I like to start out with the words of Psalm 19. David says, may these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. I just wanted to speak a little bit this morning um, about waiting on God, because that's where we're at as a church right now. Uh, we're kind of waiting to see what God's going to have for us. We're waiting to see who will be our, our next lead pastor and where, where we're going to go from here. And it's all in God's time. And I got to tell you, I hate waiting. Uh, it's just not, you know, standing in lines drives me nuts. I'm usually willing to pay more for something to get it now as opposed to uh, ordering it, waiting for a couple of weeks. Our culture has me trained to expect immediate service in a restaurant, and I'm not real fond of doctor's waiting rooms either. Uh, but now I find myself with all of you in God's waiting room. So I guess one of the questions is, why does he make us wait? You know, he's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. Everything on earth and heaven is under his dominion. So he doesn't need us to wait. So it's got to be for our benefit, not his. I think that the time that we spend waiting on God is time that is spent for us to draw closer to him. I think he wants us to realize our need and our dependence on him. And so he makes us wait. 
Now, how do we spend that time in God's waiting room? We don't really know how long we'll be there. Because again, it's God's time, not our time. 2 Peter 3.8 says, Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years are like a day. Now I'm sure, I sure hope, that he's not going to make us wait a thousand years. Um, but I also know that it could be a while to my impatient, mortal, human way of measuring time. But you know, when we get into this, when I got started, you jump into Scripture, and it's kind of hard to say where God will take you. Um, I started at Psalm 62, and that's where I want to spend some time. But first, we have to go to 2 Samuel. Um, 2 Samuel is mostly the story of David as king of Israel. Uh, 1 Samuel tells the story mostly of Saul, who was Israel's first king, talks about his jealousy of uh, David and his Saul's uh, ultimate separation from the will of God and, and God's punishment by removing the uh, kingdom from not only from him, but from his family line and placing David in there as, as in place of him. And 2 Samuel then starts out with David learning about Saul's death and then moving on to become king of Israel. David's one of my heroes in the Bible. Um, I can relate to David. God called him a man after God's own heart. And that's, that's where I want to be. But God also knew David, and, and David had a lot of problems. He had a lot of failures. But he genuinely wanted to please God. And he had a real personal relationship with God. So you'd think, you know, he's got this relationship with God and now he's got the kingdom. He should be pretty well set up, right? But he also had family. Family can get messy. And part of the problem was he had too many wives. Really. <laughs> you know, you've got different households set up and you've got David had children that didn't really think of themselves as brothers and sisters because they had different mothers. And their father didn't live with them. He was busy with government affairs, and you know, so I, I don't know how all that worked, but I know that, you know, they're separated. There's feuds, there's arguments. You probably got sons jostling for, for power and status in the kingdom. So there was one, one of his sons named Amnon who lustfully fell in love with his half sister, Tamar, from a different mother. And he managed to lure her into a, a situation where he was in control and, and alone with her. And he raped her, took her. And in, in that setting in Israel, that was a total disgrace. He, he pretty much ruined this girl's life. Now, she had a full brother named Absalom, also David's son. Absalom was absolutely furious that Amnon would do this thing to his sister. And so he plotted, and he got a gathering, and he managed to get uh, Amnon killed for disgracing his sister. Well, when he found out about that, David sent Absalom into exile, threw him out of the kingdom. And then a little bit later, he brought him back. He reconciled with him, or so he thought. But Absalom was um, a plotter and a schemer as well. And he ended up rebelling against David. And so there was a period 
when David actually had to leave the kingdom. He had to leave Jerusalem under fear of death. And there were some loyal people that went with him and there was a a marching out um, because he was afraid for his life. And the reason that he was afraid for his life was his son Absalom and the men that were working with him and for him were trying to kill him. Because as long as David was alive, Absalom wouldn't have real full control of the kingdom. So in Absalom's mind, for him to take that kingdom, David had to be dead. In 2 Samuel 14, uh, it tells us that in all Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. So he was seen as a movie star kind of guy. You know, he was, he was handsome, he was popular. And he knew how to manipulate people. He, uh, he would, would set himself at the town gate. And as people came in to bring a, a problem to the king for judgment, he would say, well, you know, if I was king, I'd get this figured out for you. I'd, I'd be on your side, you know. And it said that Absalom behaved this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. People are fickle. Just with his, his smooth talking, his appearance, his conniving, he swayed the people his way. And Absalom ended up forcibly taking the kingdom from David. David had to, like I said, had to flee for his life. Didn't know if he was going to remain king or if he'd even live to see another day. So when we look at Psalm 62, that's the situation, sort of the background that we think was going on when David wrote this psalm. He was no longer, he was still king technically by the law of the land because he was king for life, but he was outside the kingdom and somebody else had taken his place and he didn't know what, when he was going to come back or if he was going to come back. So he had enemies on every side. He wanted to topple him as king and to murder him. So let's take a look at Psalm 62. And as we do this, keep in mind, one of the difficulties we have in this is that very few of us have experienced the kind of desperation that David was under when he wrote this psalm. Um, we can't really relate. Not too many of us have had to get up in the morning and wonder if we're going to live through the day if our son is going to send somebody to put a knife in our heart. So he had evil men scheming. So the first two verses, I, I had two versions to look at just because I wanted to show you how they, they sort of differ a little bit. The ESV version says, says this, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. So that's, that's one interpretation of the, the Hebrew. And then in the NIV, we find it this way. Truly my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from Him. Truly He is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. So a couple of different, you know, a little bit difference, but obviously they came from the same Greek, so or not Greek, Hebrew. They came, two people translating it a little bit different way, but they're conveying the same sense. So one says, my soul waits in silence. The other says, my soul finds rest 
Both of those convey a sense of peace, knowing that God is in control. When you hear my soul waiting in silence, there's no complaint there. There's no fear. There's just submission to God's will. When he, the other version that says my soul finds rest in God, we find peace and tranquility. When we submit to God, we give over our whole life and our circumstance to him. We trust him, secure in the knowledge that he is working for our good. And we submit, that's key. When difficult things happen, we can, and we do, we complain, we grumble, we get mad at God. Well, that's not waiting in silence. That's not waiting at rest. We say, Lord, how could you let this happen? What kind of loving God are you? I don't deserve this. And of course, the truth is we do deserve it. Every one of us, we're sinners. And, you know, we were born into that since the, the fall in the Garden of Eden. And while we might not face the kind of situation David was in with, with enemies after our, literally our lives, um, we do face something more dangerous spiritually. Um, that spiritual death that we were born into because of the fall um, is very real. And it's something that, that we don't have to worry about if we are in, in trust with God and we accept that salvation from Him. Paul says in Ephesians 2.1, as for you, you were, were dead in your transgressions and sins. He uses the past tense. And why is that? What changed? He goes on to say just seven verses later in Ephesians 2, 8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. So even that faith that saves us is given to us by God. Without Him, we don't have it within us to have that kind of faith. And the point is, if God alone is your salvation from eternal death, if He raised you from death to life by sending Jesus here to die for you, and gave you the faith to believe in Him, then you, we, can also confidently take refuge in Him from less threatening trials, right? Paul says in Romans 8, 31 and 32, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? God is for us. And we just have to wait on him to find rest in him. Job, Job was a great example. God allowed Satan to test Job and to take everything away from him. Job lost his wealth, his house. He lost his kids, lost everything. And what happened when he, that happened? Job said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In Lord, life's most threatening times, like those with Job, we can be at peace if God only if God alone is our salvation and refuge. And I, I emphasize that only alone. That's another important part of these first two verses in, uh, in that psalm. And, and I should tell you, don't, I'm not a Bible scholar. This is not, a lot of this is not coming from me. I wrote, read some commentaries and, and did some research. Um, 
Another important part is the use of the Hebrew word that translates as only or alone. So uh, David is saying that only God, God alone is my rock, my salvation, my fortress. And I'll stick with the NIV for the rest of the psalm. The psalm itself isn't very long, but boy, it says a lot. David goes on in in verse 3 with some choice words about his enemies. His tone, um, it, it's derisive. He's, he's scornful of them. He, he doesn't, uh, it sounds almost like he doesn't take them seriously because of the first, he says he, he's in God's hands. He knows that. Uh, he refers to himself as a leaning wall, a tottering fence. He's weak. And it should be easy to knock him over, he says. He says, how long will you assault me? Would all of you throw me down, this leaning wall, this tottering fence? Surely they intend to topple me from my lofty place. His position is king. They take delight in lies. With their mouths they bless, but in their hearts they curse. David knows that it's not his own strength that will prevail, but that of God. In verse 2, go back to that, he says, Truly, he's my rock and my salvation. He's my fortress. I will never be shaken. He goes on farther to describe these people as lacking character. He says they're two-faced, blessing with their mouths, cursing in their hearts. They were liars, and they were only waiting for a chance to overthrow him when he was weak. And remember who he's talking about. He's talking about his son, his own son, and the people that were probably his own royal officials and advisors at one time. David was betrayed, and he felt that betrayal. Then the second part of the psalm is almost a repetition, but if you look at, at the way it's worded, David seems to be repeating himself, and he is to some extent, but now he addresses himself, his own soul. It's like he's exhorting himself to remind himself. You ever, I don't know, you get ready for something, you just kind of try to pump yourself and say, okay, I can do this, you can do this, you can do this. Come on, you got this, you got this. I think that's where David's at in the second part of this psalm from verses 5 to 8. He says, yes, my soul, find rest in God. My hope comes from him. Truly, he's my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. And then he, he also addresses the people around him, with him. He says, trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. And in verses 5 and 6, that Hebrew word for only is used again. David is telling his soul to find rest only in God. And that God alone is David's rock and salvation. Word pictures are strong here. A rock. It's a solid place. It's one you can stand in in security and know that you won't sink. And as I was writing this, I thought about a little. It's happened in my childhood. Um, I did grow up around this area. I was gone for a long time, but I remember when there was nothing out here in, in Newman Lake. There was nothing out there either. And we used to go out to Newman Lake to go fishing, and I haven't been out there for a while. No, it's still there. There used to be an irrigation canal, and uh, it didn't smell so good. The water was pretty stagnant, but sometimes you could catch some pretty good crappie in there. So my dad and I, and I think my mom was with us too, she was, we were out there um, fishing one day, and I was probably, I don't know, 10, 11. You get bored, you start wandering off, doing everything. And I found a snake. A snake. I hadn't thought about that part before. Snakes get you in trouble, right? I'm going to go back to that Garden of Eden thing. 
It was a snake. Anyway, I found this snake and I wanted to show it to my mom. She hated snakes. And I knew that, but I, you know. <laughs> when I caught the snake, I was standing on a rock, solid ground. And when I took one step off of that rock with this snake running to show it to my mom, and I ended up to here in this slimy, muddy, irrigation ditch. Uh, it was horrible. And I stunk to high heaven. I do remember that we had, we had an old 63 Chevy pickup. Had the old wooden bed in it. And by this time, that was an old truck and that bed was pretty splintery. But that's where I rode all the way home because they wouldn't let me in the cab. <laughs> smelled bad. So the rock, the solid place. And he talks about salvation, deliverance from danger from his enemies, but also much more, eternal salvation, deliverance from, de uh, from Satan, from spiritual death, deliverance from condemnation. And you can also, if you count the times that David uses the word my, just in verses 5 through 7, nine times, that's a personal relationship with God. He says, my salvation, my honor, depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. David knew God, and he knew that God was there with him. He's reminding himself where his strength comes from. He's jacking himself up, like I said, for that fight that he knows is coming. And we need to do this too. We have to remind ourselves constantly that God is in control. He alone. Only Him. He has every situation in hand. And the reason we have to do that, the reason that we have to keep reminding ourselves is that we are weak, sinful. We're human. We say that we trust in God, in God alone, but then we start planning and scheming about how to deliver ourselves. I do. Instead of waiting on God. It's human nature. And we just have to praise God that He loves us so much and that He has patience with our weakness. David tells us in verse 8 to pour out our hearts to God, to trust in Him at all times because He's our refuge. When we submit to God's sovereignty over our lives, when we admit how utterly powerless we are, and when we cry out to God for help, then we're in the right place. We're in the right place for Him to give us rest and comfort. Uh, I, had a, I had the opportunity many years back now to go through a, a discipleship class with a pastor that I really um, love and respect. And he used to tell us that God is not going to work in your life until you come to that place where you are so broken that you understand that you can't rely on yourself and you have to rely on God. And when you reach that place, then God says, now you're ready. Let's go to work. Okay. I lost my spot. In, uh, in pouring out our hearts to God, we free ourselves. Uh, we can take that bag full of burdens that we carry and we can just empty it out, shake it out in front of God, and we know that He'll take it away. 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7 says, Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that He may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Is that cool or what? We have a God who is our rock, our salvation, our refuge. He is so mighty, so powerful, and He cares for us. 
And finally, in the last part of the psalm, David goes on. Now, now he's telling us what not to put our trust in. He says, okay, I told you what you should be doing. Now here's the stuff you need to watch out for. He says, surely the lowborn are but a breath. The highborn are but a lie. If weighed on a balance, they are nothing. Together, they're only a breath. Do not trust in extortion or put vain hope in stolen goods. Though your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. One thing God has spoken, two things I have heard. Power belongs to you, God, and with you, Lord, is unfailing love. And you reward everyone according to what they have done. Notice that nowhere in this psalm, nowhere does God ask, or excuse me, does David ask God for anything. This is not a prayer to gain anything. It's not even a prayer for deliverance. Never once does he say, God, please save me. It's a statement that he knows deliverance will come. It's a praise psalm. He knows that, that David has salvation and refuge no matter what because his trust is in God, not in men and not in schemes. He knows that God can overcome all that. And talking about the people that are against him, he says if weighed on a balance, they're nothing. He put all that might on one side of the balance and God's mighty finger on the other and there's nothing over there. This psalm speaks much, a lot, of trusting in God alone. And David explained why it's important not to set trust in men in that last part of the psalm. He understood that whether they're men of low degree or high degree, they're altogether lighter than vapor. There's no substance there, nothing worthy of trust. And it's possible that David did not intend really to make a distinction between men of low degree and high degree. They think it might have been just sort of a, a poetic way of saying, you know, like we might say from east to west, you say, of high degree to low degree. It just might be saying all men. But however that is, we're not supposed to put our hearts in that. Um, it says don't, don't trust in oppression or vainly hope in robbery. David had seen people, at most, in that time, he'd seen men advance through cruel and dishonest things. Uh, and he was warning against that. He understood that the results never justify evil to get the results. If riches increase, don't set your heart on them. As king, David, he ended up being a very wealthy man. Um, most of his early years, he was a shepherd. He, he was in poverty. So he knew what it was like to see his riches increase, and he knew the foolishness of setting his heart on them. It's possible to hold great wealth without trusting in those riches, but it's not easy. Charles Spurgeon said there are at least three ways in which you may set your heart on riches. You might take excessive pleasure in your riches, make them the source of your joy. You might place your hope and security in riches. Or you might grow proud and arrogant because of riches. That's idolatry. If we take anything and place it ahead of God as an object of worship or security or passion, money, power, career, those are idols. So it, it kind of made me think, how hard would it be to let go of something like that if God wanted you to? Just something for consideration. Since power belongs to God, David refused to look for strength anywhere else. 
He didn't long for power unto himself. He didn't become arrogant as a ruler because he knew that any power he held was as God's representative. So that kind of brings us to the end of the psalm and the question that we asked or I asked at the beginning. What should we do while we're sitting in God's waiting room, so to speak? We don't know how long we're going to be here. First thing is praise and worship. God is our creator, our hope and our strength, our salvation. We owe him our praise and worship in every circumstance. We were created to worship him. We have a deep need to worship him. We don't always realize it, but it's there. Our willingness to wait on him is a reflection of our faith and trust in God. It brings us into a closer relationship with him. Isaiah 40, 30 and 31 this is my favorite verses in the Bible. Youths may faint and grow weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. I take that to mean run spiritually, because I do get weary if I try to run. So we've got praise and worship. We need prayer. When we pray, we relinquish control with God. We don't, we don't treat him like a magic genie placed in a bottle to grant our wishes for us. That's not what it's about. Sincere prayer expresses a desire for God's will and our acceptance of that will. And relinquishing control also means that we are ready to accept God's answer to prayer. His answer might be yes, it might be no, it might be not now. Wait. We place our faith in God's love and we know that he'll make things work for the best. We should study while we're waiting. That means getting into the word, reading God's scripture. That's the best way to hear from him directly. The Bible is our instruction book. We shouldn't be surprised when we get ourselves into difficult situations if we bypass reading the instruction. Guys, you know how that works, right? You get a brand new toy home, Put it together. Don't need no stinking instructions. Yeah, right. When we study God's word, we're better able to understand God's character and learn why he does what he does the way he does it. Might even help us realize why we are being made to wait, if we really are. And the, the last thing is service, work. We may not know what the future holds, but we do have the here and now to deal with. Trusting in God to bless our future, it, that does not give us permission to quit doing the work that he put us here for. Waiting does not mean doing nothing. As we wait, we should serve him faithfully, diligently. James reminds us in James 2, uh, 26, that works are a reflection of our strength, of our family. I've read that wrong. The verse says, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Okay. So I, I just I wanted to tell you a little story about Tammy and I and our situation at, at one time waiting on God because we didn't know what was going to happen. Um, you'll have to go back 20 years. <laughs> so we we were a young married couple. Um, See, Jerry was born in 1989, so it was before that. We wanted to, to have a family. And it just wasn't happening. And ultimately, we found a, a pretty good doctor in the Army that diagnosed Tammy with something called endometriosis. 
which causes issues with ladies conceiving children. Um, we were able, after some, some work and some medication, to have our son, Jerry. And uh, I remember reading at that time, I'm, I'm a pharmacist, I was working in the medical area, and I, you know, my wife has this problem, so I'm trying to read up on it. And at that time, the medical literature said that if you could get a young woman to conceive a child, carry it to term, that there was a very good likelihood that the endometriosis would just disappear. So we thought, when she became pregnant with Jerry, hey, this is great, it's gone. Well, that didn't happen. I still remember coming home from work one day and finding Tammy in so much pain that she was just curled up in the fetal position on the floor crying. So, move on story a little bit. Long story short, um, went through some surgeries and some procedures. One of those surgeries was supposed to help uh, her be able to have a child, and there was a mix-up, a mishap, rather, during the surgery that left her with a, a bleed in her abdomen. Um, the surgery that they had to do to stop that could come, potentially cause blood clots. So they put her on a medicine to prevent blood clots. Well, that medicine also meant you couldn't get pregnant. You would kill the baby if you did get lucky and got, you know. So uh, it, it, was, it was heartbreaking and it was frustrating and it, it made you wonder, God, what, where are you? What's, what's going on? Um, and then the next thing that happened was that in order to get rid of the pain, Tammy had to have surgery that made her entirely unable to have kids anymore. She was 28. And our hopes of having a biological family were gone. Well, then God steps in. He knows what we've been waiting. And um, we were able to uh, find our our way to an agency in Seattle called WACAP. And ultimately they led us to a couple of uh, gypsy sisters in Romania. And uh, I've got one of them sitting here in the front row this morning, so kind of nice to have her here. Can you put up those pictures for me, Alan, the first one? Okay, so this is our trip over to Romania. Um, we got Anna and Dimitra, that's Dimitra on the right. Um, I'm not sure, the orphanage thought that she might have had uh, a lice problem back then. I'm not sure that was the case, but they shaved her head. She looked like a Marine in boot camp. Um, go ahead, Alan. And this was in the apartment in Romania. You had uh, the two of them together. Next. I'm not trying to take too long with this. So this again, this is in the apartment. They loved books. They were really delighted. Um, this picture, though, I just wanted to point out this is one of the jokes that God plays on people. Tammy still looks that good. <laughs> Next. <laughs> so this is after we get them home and they were reading and uh, Demetra's hair is growing back. That's her on the left now. And uh, yeah, this was ice cream the first time. And on a... Next one. And this is our, our new family. That's our son, Jerry, on the right. He was eight when we adopted the girls. So I guess the, the point is, you know, God has a plan. We may not know what it is. And in our limited, finite human minds, it might look as if the situation is hopeless. 
But God always has a plan and He knows exactly what He's doing. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. It's like David said in Psalm 62, Truly my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from Him. Truly He is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress and I will never be shaken. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your loving kindness. You're watching over us. You are our rock and our salvation and our fortress, our refuge from all the things in life that could uh, take us away from you or make us unhappy. Help us, Lord, to be mindful that you are in control and that no matter what's going on, we can lean on you and know that, uh, that you are in control. As we go out this week, Lord, help us to be watching for the ways that you are working in this world. Thank you for your love, Lord. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Thank you for listening to today's message from Liberty Lake Church in Liberty Lake, Washington. Our pastor, our elders, and our prayer watch team are available to pray with you or to answer any questions you may have. Contact us through www.LibertyLakeChurch.com or follow us on Facebook. We look forward to hearing from you and welcome any comments you may have. As always, we appreciate your prayer support. Join us next week on God's Word for You for today for another message from Liberty Lake Church. Thank you again, and God bless.